0: All right, well, here we are. I hope you found your way on your phone, uh, tablet, or in a paper Bible. I hope you found your way to 1 Timothy chapter 2. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 15, 8 through 15. I'm going to read the text. When I finish verse 15, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond. Thanks be to God. Please follow along as I read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly, With all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she shall be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wanna pray and then look into this text together this morning. Father, I ask that you would help us to hear your voice and follow your lead. All of us here in this room today are people who are under authority. We're under your authority. You call each one in this room to submit to you, to draw near to you, to hear your voice. And so that's what we desire to do. Regardless of the white noise of culture or perhaps our family of origin or our background or maybe even our own personal biases, we ask that your voice would overrule all of those and that we would follow you because you are the good shepherd and you have good intentions for us. You're the creator and your design is the best. And so we look to you, we look to you in your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I sat down to write my manuscript for this sermon, and I felt like I was having a sort of flashback to seventh grade. You all remember the tween years, don't you? You first started to get zits, the boys' voices cracked, The the girls grew taller and such, And those were difficult years for everyone. But my flashback wasn't just about 7th grade braces, the introduction of deodorant, or the constant cringe life that you endure. No, this flashback was about the awkwardness of 7th grade science class. With each chapter covered in the textbook, a student would get up and present a summary. Can you imagine it? Clara gets up. Chapter 1, plant life. The next week, Ryan gets up. Chapter 2, astronomy. And then you get assigned Chapter (laughs) 3. Nobody wanted Chapter 3. Because Chapter 3 was about reproductive biology. (laughs) And here you are just trying to manage your own changes in life from day to day. And you have to get up in front of the class... And talk about body parts and you know what? The smirks you receive in the hall. The high fives on your way to the classroom. (laughs) You got this, they say. Can't wait to hear what you have to say today. (laughs) Oh, this is going to be good, they whisper. Never were your classmates this interested in getting to science class. They just want to see you squirm. Well, that's kind of how I feel approaching today's passage. (laughs) John Stott says, These are probably the most controversial verses in the pastoral letters. Thanks, John. Craig Blumberg writes, These are the single most scrutinized verses in recent scholarship. Thanks, Craig. (laughs) Abraham Kuravila writes, these texts are a lightning rod in recent decades. It's like you just want to stick your hand up and just get it done with. Just, just hit me. You get these comments throughout the week, like I've gotten. Oh, I've been looking forward to this. Can't wait to hear what you're going to unfold in the text today. You can do it, they say with a holy high five. Never have people been in such anticipation about a sermon. And I think it's because they just want to watch me squirm. Well, God's word is good. And the passage before us is not a threat, it's an opportunity for us to delight in and trust in God's plan. I love the words of Kathy Keller in her book, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. She writes, your life takes on meaning and matures when you conform to God's will, not when you get to do what you want to do. Well, when it comes to men and women and their respective roles, we live in a society that screams, do what you want to do. But we've gathered today, not to assert our own ideas, Because we are like sheep that tend to go astray. Instead, we've gathered to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and follow his lead. We've assembled to corporately say, Lord, show us what you want. So without further ado, let's get on with 1 Timothy 2 8 through 15. And let's look at its instruction for number one, divisive men. Number two, distracting women. And number three, distinctive roles. We'll start with the guys. And I'll say it bluntly. In love, mind you. But Paul basically says in verse number eight, divisive men need to change. That's what he's saying in the text. Look again at the passage, verse number eight I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, but notice what he says, but without anger or quarreling. Okay, let's get ourselves contextually oriented. What is Paul's purpose in the book of 1 Timothy? Well, he says in chapter 3, verse 15, it is that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And so he wants to give instructions in the book of 1 Timothy about corporate worship, the gathered worship of the church. And it's not just for one group in a select Ephesian house church, as if then we could ignore it and say, that was for them and that was then, but this is now and we have better ideas we've come up with. No, he's talking about corporate worship in the church at large. And so there's an important little phrase in verse 8. I want you to take a look at it, maybe underline it. Verse 8, he says, in every place. In other words, not just in this one house church in Ephesus, but in every place, this is what I want. And so this passage all the way through verse 15 is universal. It's the rule for worship in the church at large wherever the household of God meets. So beginning with men in the church, Paul instructs them to pray. And I think maybe this grand takeaway of verse number eight is that Paul puts the burden of leadership on the guys when it comes to corporate prayer. Now, men, I'm not saying that you have to be the only ones who pray. Because we know in the church of Corinth, women prayed in the gathering of the church. So it's not just men. But what you get a sense of in verse number eight is that men are supposed to lead the way when it comes to corporate prayer. And so I'm wondering if you men are inclined to lead in prayer. Do you move, I mean, guys in the room, I just want to ask you do you move towards prayer? Or away from it. If you were asked this morning, imagine Pastor Josh, he's kind of got more energy than all of us combined and he's out by the door. He hasn't even had one cup of coffee and we're all jealous. And there he is greeting everyone and Pastor Josh is there. And just as you come by, sir, he asks you, would you open up our service in prayer this morning? He's got this big smile on his face. You just stare at him blankly. If you were asked to lead in corporate prayer this morning, sir, would it be like winning the lottery or would it be like being selected for latrine duty in boot camp? Here in our text, Paul wants men to pray in church. Notice the qualification that he puts on it, though. It's not just like, is there any willing soul out there who will open his mouth and pray for us this morning? That's not it. He wants men to lead the way in corporate prayer, but he has some specific qualifications. Verse eight, men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, he talks about lifting holy hands, and that was one posture of prayer, that early Christians adopted. It was sometimes called the Orans posture. And believers would stand with their hands raised to heaven. And it depicted this need that you had towards God, like a child who was looking up at his parents and asking for help. Like, would you help us, oh God? This was a common posture in prayer. They find some of the earliest Christian art in Roman catacombs, with pictures of Christians praying in this posture. He's saying in verse eight, I would that men should pray lifting holy hands. But I think Paul is less concerned about the posture and more concerned about our piety. Because he says, lifting holy hands, and then he goes, without anger or quarreling. In other words, as you fold through the pages of the Bible, what you will find is that people pray in a great Many postures. Some are seated, 2 Samuel 7. Some are looking up, Psalm 25. Some are looking down, Luke 18. Some are bowing or kneeling, Acts 7. Others are putting their faces all the way to the ground, Numbers chapter 14. The gestures and the postures vary when it comes to prayer. But purity of heart should not. People hear the words of your mouth They hear all the the, this one gets me, all the these and nows. If you do it, I mean, fantastic. But listen, God is not tuned in to 17th century Elizabethan English. Oh, now I can listen to their prayer. I heard a thee. No, he doesn't do that, okay? You can have all of these flowery words with your mouth. You can clasp your hands. You can present some solemn demeanor but God sees you all the way down to your heart. He wants purity before him and he wants peace with others. And that's the sort of heart he requires when we go to prayer. So men, you may be opening your hands, but is your heart clutching anger and resentment? You might be smooth in your words this morning, but is your soul factious or argumentative? If you're a troublemaker rather than a peacemaker, God will not hear your prayers. I mean, I just wonder how many homes this man in the home, one author said it this way, he's a saint at the church and a devil in the home. I wonder how much anger and quarreling fills the rooms of homes and then this man arrives at church and he's got a blessed smile. What a meek and spiritual man, listen to him pray. Sir, God sees you all the way down to your heart. If you are divisive and disagreeable, if you are an ornery disputer in the church, then your prayers never make it past the ceiling. Brothers, instead of harboring anger and engaging in quarreling, God wants you to pursue love and peace and holiness so that your prayers might not be hindered. And so here in verse number eight, I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul is starting by saying divisive men need to change. Now, just when the woman sitting next to you is ready to mutter an amen, amen, Paul moves on to the next part. After talking about divisive men and how they need to change, he says, distracting women also need to change. Look at verses 9 and 10. Likewise, and you could insert the verb, I desire, because that's the carryover. Remember, he desires men do this. And likewise, he desires also that women, verse 9, would adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. In other words, adorned with good works. Paul is concerned that women care about both their clothing and their conduct when they come to corporate worship. He thinks it's important what you wear and what you do when you gather in the assembly. Listen, this gathering isn't about attracting attention to yourself. It's about directing attention to the Lord. And I just wonder in a morning like today, When all of us stand in front of the mirror, we brush our teeth, thankfully. We prepare ourselves, comb our hair, curl our hair, whatever else you do with your hair. You get yourself ready. I just wonder if we've taken that much time to get our hearts ready to point towards God. Maybe we've gotten ready so that people can look at us, but have we gotten ready so that we can direct people to look at God? That's what Paul is after here. The church is supposed to be an assembly of those who are adorned inside and out in ways that please the Lord and depict godliness. That's what Paul is after. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read a passage like this, I'm curious. What in the world was going on in Ephesus that would cause Paul to wade into waters like talking about what women should wear. Every guy in the room knows, don't do it. Don't do it. If a woman asks you, does this make me look fat? You don't answer, it's a trap. What do you think about this outfit? You look beautiful, honey. I mean, listen, don't go into that realm. It's filled with landmines, don't step in it. And yet, here's Paul. He just just walks right through it. (laughs) Now, what was going on in Ephesus that would cause Paul to move into this dangerous space of talking about women's apparel? Well, the city was located on the Aegean Sea. It had a healthy trade of sea jewels. At that time, pearls were women's diamonds. Diamonds. And apparently, there were ladies in the church who would wear extravagant gold and pearl jewelry. They'd wear luxurious garments. They'd call attention to themselves. They'd walk into the assembly, and their clothes, their hair, their jewelry would scream, look at me, I'm beautiful. Look at me, I'm rich. Look at me, I'm sexy. Look at me. The first century, those who had wealth And those who had rank would have their slaves spend hours preparing their hair. Wealthy women would have their slaves braid their hair and wrap the locks into these intricate creations. They would wear exquisite silks that they purchased at the Ephesian Agora. Power, rank, and wealth were displayed in hairstyle, accessories, and fashion choices. Back then, just like it is today. In Stacey Schiff's Pulitzer-winning book, "Cleopatra: A Life," she writes about how Caesar once gifted his mistress a pearl worth the cumulative average wages of 1,200 professional soldiers. He gives his mistress this one pearl. Now, the book cover photo gives us a glimpse at how these pearls and gold may have been worn. You can see it decorating the hair of this woman. Kelly Olson captures what's important about all this in her book, Dress and the Roman Woman, Self-Presentation in Society. She writes this, quote, when the average Roman woman in antiquity stepped outside her home, her apparel and hairstyle would have conveyed visual signals about her rank citizen-freeborn slave, her marital status, in some cases her age, and even her moral status. Then and there, even more than here and now, dress meant representation. In the first century province of Asia, hair, jewelry, and clothing revealed meaning beyond Who people were. Apparel and style communicated whose they were. Friends, Paul wanted women in the church to communicate whose they were. In other words, that they belonged to the Lord. Ladies, you face extreme pressure in the realm of beauty. I know this because all you have to do is drive down I-15. You make your way through this valley and it's filled with billboards for augmentation, rejuvenation, Botox and belly tucks, body contouring, liposuction, eyelid surgery, and the, quote, lips you've always wanted. They say things like, this is what the billboards proclaim. Friends don't let friends muffin top. Or... Make your inner beauty jealous. Or here's a favorite one that's classic Utah. God's remodeling his temple. Isn't it time to remodel yours? (laughs) We live in a time when plastic surgeries have increased almost 50% since the year 2000. We live in a state that does more breast implants than any other. It has the highest number of beauty treatment businesses per resident. It was called The vainest City in America by Forbes magazine. And there's actually some writers who talk about what they call a, quote, Utah look. This is Allure.com. They describe it as polished with expertly applied makeup, but not flashy. Wholesome, but not dowdy. Fit and athletic, curvy waistlines, long, wavy and shiny hair, often worn in loose braids, flawless skin and long eyelashes which may involve extensions. And if you look carefully here, you can say, you can see under the Allure magazine, the look of Mormon." There's a Utah look they talk about. Ladies, I have three daughters, and I'm going to tell you, I'm sick of the influencers trying to sell them skin products. Fashion designers trying to outfit them for the next season constantly. YouTubers fostering a black hole of discontentment. It's a never-ending attempt. Listen, all of this stuff is a never-ending attempt to distract you from what God says truly matters. You are beautiful, you are loved, If you're Christ-like, listen, you're Knuff. For all of you who don't know, I made myself watch it this last week in preparation for this message. Now, don't get me wrong. This command about not worrying about braided hair and And gold and pearls and all that. This command is not to conceal your beauty. It's, It's not telling you to look frumpish. There's no virtue in looking drab or unkempt. I think that Paul just wanted believing sisters to have a different motivation in their clothing selection than the unsaved culture around them. Whereas unbelieving women may have dressed to flaunt extravagance, display lavish lifestyle, or exhibit their sensuality. Christian ladies were supposed to be respectable, modest, and self-controlled. They were to exhibit good works, or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3, verse 4, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. I love how the elderly churchman, he's... Uh, recently passed away, John Stott once wrote to women like a loving grandfather. He said this, if nature has made you plain, grace can make you beautiful. And if nature has made you beautiful, good deeds can add to your beauty. Friends, a woman's beauty is her godliness, not her gaudiness. She's beautiful because of who she is and what she does, not because of what she wears. Solomon put it like this long ago. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Well, Paul has made it clear that divisive men and distracting women need to change but the passage isn't finished. It goes on to say one last thing, and that is that distinctive roles need to be upheld in the church. Now, this is where things get interesting. You've made it this far. You've said, okay. This is where seventh graders squirm. Look at verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, perhaps the best way to unpack these verses is to note what a woman should do and what she should not do in the church. Now, there are going to be inverse implications that have to do with the role of men that will be picked up in chapter 3. And so they're not off the hook. But Paul starts with the roles of women. Before we get hung up on the words quietude and submissiveness, the naughty Q and S word, let's look at this directive positively. You say, how can we look at this positively? Well, notice the imperative is that women should learn in church. Now, that may not strike you as a big deal, but in the first century, it was. The equality of the sexes that is so much at the forefront of modern thought received very little recognition in ancient times. The rabbinical opinion expressed in the Jerusalem Talmud said this, it would be better for the words of Torah to be burned than that they should be entrusted to a woman. Roman legislation at that time accentuated women's, and I'm going to give you three Latin words, see if you can figure them out. Roman legislation accentuated women's infirmitas, levitas, imbecilitas. Infirmity, irrationality, and imbecility. Questioning women's aptitude to reason, to deliberate, or to maintain self control. Athenian women were known to have received little or no education. They were typically married at or before puberty, somewhere between 11 and 13 years old. At every stage of their life, they were the legal property of men. In general, listen, when you hit this thing and you turn yourself negatively on a couple of descriptors, you're missing the main point, and that is that positively women should learn in the church, and that was countercultural. At that time, the general situation for women was less than ideal. Listen to this. Men outnumbered women 140 to 100 in Italy, North Africa, and Asia Minor in the first century. Now that may not mean anything to you, but in J.C. Russell's work on ancient populations, he writes this. Quote, sex ratios this extreme can only occur when there is something tampering with human life. In other words, someone must have been tampering with the lives of women to get it to be only a hundred women for 140 men. And in fact, there was tampering going on. In antiquity, the exposure of unwanted female infants was legal, morally accepted, and widely practiced. In other words, when a mother birthed a girl, They stuck it outside for the birds and animals to kill and take away. In a letter dated June 17th, 1 BC, a Roman soldier named Hilarion writes to his pregnant wife, Alice, quote, if you are delivered a child before I come home, if it is a male, let it be. If a girl, cast it out. A study of inscriptions at Delphi made it possible for them to reconstruct, listen to this, 600 families. Of 600 families, only six raised more than one daughter. There was a problem in the first century and women were not treated well. But what you need to understand is that Christianity was upending this. It cut across social patterns more deeply than any other religion. Wives were treated with consideration and love. Read 1 Corinthians 7 or Ephesians 5. All humans were were endowed with dignity and respect because they were image bearers in the thoughts of Christians. Children were loved and discarded female babies were rescued by believers. So make no mistake, when you see in our text that Paul is telling women to learn in the church, that is positive and countercultural. He doesn't focus on whether women should learn, but only upon how they should learn. And quite frankly, it's not a big ask. You say, well, how would you know? You're standing up there teaching. My friends, I don't stand up here and teach every week. Sometimes I sit there with quietude and submissiveness to the elder who preaches to me. Quietude and submissiveness are called upon for women in the church. But I want to tell you something, if you study the scriptures, quietude and submissiveness are called upon for all of us. What does this mean, quietness and submissiveness, in verse 11? Quietness just meant undivided attention. It's the attention Paul received. Do you remember when he was, he was rescued by these Roman soldiers in Jerusalem? There's this mob that's gonna just tear Paul apart limb from limb and these Roman soldiers rescue him and he's being Uh, scurried away and he gets to this, this set of stairs and he says, no, 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 let me talk to them. And so he comes out here and there's this angry mob and they're all yelling and they just want to rip him to pieces. And he, he, he motions with his hands. This is Acts 21, right at the end of Acts 21. He motions with his hands and it says there was a hush that fell upon him, upon them, but they were still like, it's like they quieted down, but people were still chit-chatting. And then in chapter 22, verse one, it says, he began to speak in the Hebrew tongue and quiet fell upon them. Two different Greek words. First, he raises his hand and and the mob starts to quiet down. But then he begins to speak to them in Hebrew and there was quiet. In other words, they paid attention. And that's what Paul is calling for in the gathered assembly of the church. The women would learn, but they would do it in such a way that they can pay attention. Listen, Paul is not calling for a gag order on women. As soon as they cross the threshold, we give them a piece of cloth. And you can't talk. That's not what Paul is saying. I mean, just read 1 Corinthians eleven five. 5. Women were prophesying in the church and they were praying in the church. What Paul is doing here is he's trying to limit noisy disturbances, interruptions, He's trying to quell unruly chatter and disorder in the public worship of the church. You can see parallels to his instruction in 1 Corinthians 14 34 and 40. So women were to learn peaceably, but then he says also they're supposed to learn submissively. Paul wanted the women of the church to display an attitude, you could put it this way, of cheerful agreement. He's not calling for blind acceptance but rather an attitude of charitable welcome and responsiveness. Have you ever had to stand up in front of a class or at work had to give some sort of a briefing or a talk and you see people there, they're coworkers or they're students and they're there and you can look out at the crowd and some are very welcoming to you. You can tell by their face. Like they're welcoming you, they're listening to you, they're tracking with you and then there's that other person. You know, I mean, like you can hear them huffing and puffing from the back row. I mean, they're shaking their head no. I mean, you can tell. They're not receiving this. He said that should not be your initial response when you, gather, when you come to the gathered worship of God's people. Instead, it should be one where you have a cheerful agreement. Now, he's not talking about blind acceptance. You say, how do you know that? Because think about how he commended the church of Berea the people who listen to him, this is Acts 17, 11. It says they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. It's not blind acceptance. It's just this eagerness, this charitable welcome, this receptiveness. That's what he's calling for. Quietude and submissiveness. But I want to suggest to you that though this passage is directed towards women, it actually, these qualities extend to all of our lives. I mean, Look earlier in this chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Do you remember earlier in the chapter? We're called to pray. He says, pray, 1 Timothy 2.2, 2, that we may lead peaceful and what kind of lives? Quiet, the same word. All of us, we're supposed to pray that we can be this way. That we can have quietude in our lives. In terms of submission, I mean, just fold through the pages of Scripture. I mean, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, younger elders are supposed to submit to older elders. 1 Corinthians eleven three: 3, men are supposed to submit to Christ. Hebrews 13, 17, congregants are supposed to submit to their pastors. Romans 13, 1, citizens are supposed to submit to the government. James 4, 7, all of us are supposed to submit to God. Quietude and submission aren't big asks. Actually, they're the very things that Jesus embraced. Isaiah 53, 7 says this. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it cheers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross submitted himself to the Father and prayed, not my will, but thine be done. I love how Rosaria Butterfield put it. She said, submission is what Christ did for me at the cross. And therefore, time that scripture asks me to model Christ, I trust that this is for my good and for his glory. Now notice how in addition to stating what women should do, they should learn in quietude and submissiveness. In addition to noting what women should do in the text, the apostle also clarifies what women shouldn't do. In the church, he says, they shouldn't teach or exercise authority over men. Now, I'm gonna cut to the chase and tell you what I believe from this text. I think these two prohibitions for women, not to teach, not to exercise authority, have to do with the primary functions of elders in the church. Like, why does he pick these two things? Why are these his prohibitions? Because he's going to unfold what elders are supposed to do. I mean, in the very next chapter, he's going to talk about that. In terms of teaching, elders are supposed to be uniquely gifted for teaching. I mean, in the next chapter, 1 Timothy 3, the very follow-on to this. Remember, they didn't have chapter divisions. As he keeps talking, he says there's one skill that elders need, and that is that they have to be able to teach. So he doesn't want women to teach because I think it's connected to what elders are supposed to be doing. That's their job. That's what they're supposed to be gifted to do. Or they shouldn't be elders at all. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, it says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So in terms of teaching, that's what elders are supposed to do. In terms of exercising authority, that's what elders are supposed to do. First Peter chapter five, verse two, Peter tells the elders who are among them, he says this, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. In 1 Timothy, we're going to get to this in chapter 5, verse 17, elders are supposed to rule well. Their oversight is part of their job description. And so I think Paul is clearly saying that women are not supposed to assume the sort of teaching or exercising of authority in the church that's reserved for elders, so I think a key question comes to all of our minds, and that is, so can women teach at all? Well, of course they can. We're <laughs> just going to read the text again. <laughs> Older women, I mean, think about this, the, the, the scripture as a whole. Older women are supposed to teach the younger women, Titus 2, 3, and 4. Or we have the example of Priscilla her husband, and her husband Aquila who take Apollos aside and it says they taught him the way of God more accurately, Acts chapter 18. Think about Timothy himself. And here we are in the book of 1 Timothy. Who taught Timothy the scriptures? Who was it? It was his mother and his grandmother. That's what Paul says and he commends them for it. Women are called upon to make disciples teaching them the things that Jesus commanded, Matthew 28. Women can teach other believers individually as Paul puts in Colossians three, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. So friends, quite frankly, the reason why women in this text are not supposed to teach or exercise authority is because God has taken those two responsibilities and he's given them to elders. That's what he's saying here. And this applies to the gathered congregation of the church. But even in light of that, I just want to tell you there are some women who are amazingly gifted teachers. The text, however, is saying the pulpit is not the place for that. I love how Elizabeth Elliott talked about this. She was once at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary talking about the difference between gifts. And roles. She announced to her class of both men and women that she had better gifts for being a pastor than most of the men in the class. <laughs> Possibly the entire seminary, she said. She knew multiple uh, uh, languages. Uh, she had a vast experience of expositing the Bible. She had the maturity brought through suffering, and on and on she went. However, she said, God has not called me as a woman to exercise those gifts in a pastoral role. I'm called to use them, but why should they only be valuable if they're used in ordained ministry? Fact is, friends, there are many gifts in the church and many gifted people, both men and women, who will never fill the role of elder. But that doesn't mean their gifts are worthless. It just means they're in a different place. What Paul wants for all of us, and I think this is significant in the text, what Paul wants for all of us is that we would find our proper place in the body of Christ. It's gonna do you no good to refuse God's word. You won't arrive at joy by rebelling against what he says. That will just lead you to a black hole of discontentment. Don't fight God's plan. Rosaria Butterfield, I mentioned her name earlier. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University. She wrote this about her own personal story. I was raised in a secular feminist household where my mother's strong personality and high achievement ruled the roost. I followed in my family's footsteps and a feminist world and life view became more than a political investment for me. It became an identity and a religion. In graduate school, when my sexual identity shifted from heterosexual to homosexual, my feminist worldview entitled me to embrace any sexuality between consenting adults as morally equal. From the age of 28 until my conversion nine years later, I lived in openly and serially monogamous lesbian relationships. When my neighbor, Pastor Ken Smith, shared his gospel life With me, and I, in reading through the Bible in order to critique it for a new book, was instead transformed by the Savior I sought to destroy. It was with great irony that my conversion came with deep curiosity about gender and even a willingness to rethink gender roles in light of God's Word. I prayed that God would make me a godly woman. Something about Jesus compelled me to want to put all my matters of identity before him. I'm just going to tell you, when I read this, there was like tears welled up in my eyes. Isn't that what he wants for all of us? Like we trust Jesus enough to take all of these matters and just lay them before him. Rosaria writes, I started to put my questions about gender and the gospel before the Lord. Friends, that's what he wants all of us to do. Dorothy Sayers, she put it like this. Perhaps it's no wonder that women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man, a prophet and teacher who never nagged them never flattered or coaxed or patronized them, who never made jokes about them, never treated them as the woman, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without petulance, praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously. They had never known a man like this man. Friends, you can put these matters of gender, roles and identity before Jesus and you can trust him so here in our text Paul is unfolding that in the gathered assembly of the church there are things that you should do and shouldn't do but you can trust God's goodness the late Tim Keller's wife Kathy she wrote this the notion of gender roles is not an embarrassing antiquity the church is stuck with, but a gift meant for our good. Friends, I just want to put it this way. Good is whatever God designs. Whether or not you're able to see that in gender roles depends largely on how much trust you have in God's character. But if trust has to be earned, hasn't he earned it? He gave himself up for us all, it says earlier in our text. Friends, God the Father watched his beloved get stapled to a Roman cross in your place. So he who did not spare his own son, Romans eight thirty two, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things folks you can trust god and his plan that it's for our good now our text closes it closes with two reasons for these distinctive roles and a puzzling note about childbirth in verses 13 and 14 paul points to the fact that adam was created first then eve That's the priority of man in creation. He then notes how woman was deceived first, then the man. And that's the priority of woman in the fall. And so because of God's creation order and because of what happened historically when woman acted apart from the man, leading him into disobedience, rather than the man fulfilling his role and leading the woman, Paul urges men rather than women to teach and exercise authority in the church. I think the important thing to grasp here is that Paul is grounding his rationale for these role distinctives. He's grounding his argument in creation itself. He's not appealing to culture or fads or scholars or philosophers. He's rooting our order in the original order that God said was very good. Now, just as you're ready to end, Paul tags on verse 15. Thanks, Paul. (laughs) Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with (laughs) self-control. What does that mean? (laughs) There are scores of interpretive suggestions about this last verse. But the one that resonates with me is the one I'll share this morning. And if you disagree with me, God bless you. The one that resonates with me is one that has to do with the context of Adam and Eve, what he had just been talking about. And it also includes the definite article that's found in the Greek, but not mentioned in English. In other words, the Greek literally says, saved through the childbearing. In other words, perhaps Paul is pointing to the birth of the child who would deliver all of us, the birth of the Messiah. That's what was promised in Genesis 3.15 when Adam and Eve messed up the whole thing and plunged humanity into sin, ruin, and death. There was the first promise of the Messiah, Genesis 3.15, that one day the offspring of the woman would be the serpent crusher and humanity could be saved. My friends, only Jesus through his birth and death can save us and cause us to continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. So may he help us. May he help divisive men and distracting women to change. And may the distinctive roles of both genders be upheld in his church. Let's pray together. I wonder if you just quietly bow your heads, close your eyes, and reflect on the word of the Lord. wonder if there are some men who came today with anger or quarreling in their hearts. God wants peacemakers, not troublemakers. And so perhaps something needs to change in you, sir. Or Maybe you're here this morning and you've been distracting people from God instead of attracting them to God. That's you, ma'am. Something needs to change. Finally, I wonder if God is teaching you about your proper role in the church. Maybe you just need to receive it by faith and surrender it to the Lord, lay it before him. He's good, you can trust him. Friends, let's just take a few moments to pray. Maybe you need to repent. Perhaps you have to express trust in God. Or maybe you just wanna praise him for his goodness. There are some prayer prompts on the screen. We want to turn this place into a house of prayer. Pray on your own or perhaps pray with a friend nearby. Share something that God taught you and then go to the Lord in prayer. Use these prayer prompts on the screen to help you respond to the word of the Lord.